Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Spooksters, and welcome back to another stabby snippet here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hello, everyone. Hello. Before we get into today's case, I just wanted to say a quick friendly reminder that we are having our live event next month on September 18th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, 9 Eastern. If you would like to come celebrate our second podversary, it'll be a special topic for you guys and other fun surprises through the night. You can head to our link tree to purchase tickets. We have not mentioned this because we keep forgetting, but here we are now. Mm-hmm. We did cap the VIP tickets off to a certain number, and we only have 26 of those left. So if you would like to not only attend the show, but also do the Q&A meet and greet type of situation afterwards with us, plus get a bunch of awesome swag, Jessica's got some great things planned for you guys. Make sure you go and sign up because once we are at our cap, we are not doing any more. Like I said, there's only about 25 or 26 left. So go get on that, guys. But with that, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to jump into my case this week. So I'm going to be discussing a cold case from the 80s. It's known as the Ketty Cabin Murders. It involves the Sharp family, which included Glenna Sue Sharp, age 36. She goes by Sue, so that's what I'll call her from here on out. Her children, which are John, age 15, Sheila, age 14, Tina, age 12, Rick, age 10, and Greg, age 5. Sue had previously left her abusive husband in 1980 and moved her children to Ketty, California from Connecticut. Now, I was like, wow, that's a big move, Mm -hmm. like a cross-country move. But apparently the reason why she moved to Northern California was because her brother lived in the same area. So makes sense. Be closer to some family. Now, Ketty is a super, super small town. For a population, as far as that goes, I I looked it up and the current population is 66 residents. What? Yeah. He's tiny. Do they even have (laughs) Wi-Fi? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I always think, like, if it's that tiny, I'm like, do they even have the internet? Right. Is it worth it to run the internet? Seriously. Oh, who knows? So I'm going to start with the day prior. So it was April 11th, 1981, after they've lived there for a little over a year. And it was pretty much a normal day from what I read. It was reported that at 1.30 p.m., Sue and Sheila drove from Ketty to pick up John and his friend Dana Wingate, who was his friend from high school and he was 17, from Gainsner Park in Quincy, which was just five miles away. And they were bringing them back to Ketty. Oh, so they like up in the hills. Yes. (laughs) Got it. Okay. I know where we're at now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy to go visit some friends. And the two of them were seen by witnesses in the downtown area, things like that. A local woman named Donna Williams said she picked them up in front of a tire store and then gave them a ride down the road to another friend's house. So they were definitely seen at that point. Now, the two were later seen at a party that was at Oakland Camp there in Quincy. All while they're doing their stuff the same evening, Sheila, the sister, she had plans to spend the night over with their neighbor with the Seabolt family, and she went over to their house shortly after 8 o'clock at night. Sue stayed home with the younger kids, so Rick, Greg, and then their friend Justin Smart. He was around kind of their age. Then Tina, the 12-year-old, she had been watching TV and hanging out at the Seabolts, but she came home at 9.30. So it was like after Sheila came, she hung for a little bit, and then she went home because she wasn't staying the night. So basically like a typical weekend when you have a bunch of kids, they're all kind of doing their own thing. And then John and Dana would eventually come back to the cabin as well. It didn't have a specific time on that timeline, so it was just sometime that evening. Sheila came home early the next morning at 7 a.m., and this is sadly when she would find an extremely gruesome scene. So John was the closest to the front door, and he was laying face up, and his hands were covered in blood, and he was bound with medical tape. On top of that, his throat had been slit, and then Sue, she was dead as well. She was lying on her side near their couch, and she was said to have been nude from the waist down and also had been gagged with a blue bandana and her own panties. Oh, shit. Yeah, which had both been secured with medical tape as well. And on top of that, she had been stabbed in the chest and her throat was slit. And on the side of her head, there was an imprint of the butt of a BB gun. It was a Daisy 880. So they hit her fucking hard with that. They also found Dana. He was next to John and he had multiple head injuries and basically... You could just see from looking at him, he had or his head was bashed in with some sort of blunt object and he had been manually strangled. Damn. And the weird thing was Dana had been noted that his head was on a pillow like he had been placed there and he was laying face down on his stomach and he was right next to John. Their similarities was they all had blunt force trauma to their heads, and they had ruled this was caused by a hammer or hammers. I'll get into the weapons in a second. It was also said that John and Dana were both bound with electrical wiring on their ankles. And, of course, as you guys can guess, their cause of death per their autopsies was the knife wounds and the blunt force trauma. At this time, their sister Tina was actually nowhere to be found. She was missing from the scene. But they did find the three other boys, Greg, Rick, and Justin, and they were not dead. They were unharmed, and they were actually asleep in one of the bedrooms. Shit. Yeah, which is weird, but we'll get into that. Now, obviously, when Sheila stumbled upon all this, she went back to the Seabolt's house to be like, oh, my God, my family's dead. I need help. You know, all of that. And the dad of that family, you know, he came over with her and he actually helped the boys leave. He had them go out the bedroom window so they didn't have to see the crime scene. That's smart. Yeah. And investigators had been called about an hour after Sheila had discovered her family, so about 8 a.m. And Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive on the scene, and he reported blood everywhere, on the walls, on the bottom of the victim's shoes, on Sue's feet, on the bedding in Tina's room, 
on the furniture, the ceiling, the doors, the back steps, every fucking where. Oh, God. Yeah. And blood spatters would suggest that they were killed in kind of a specific area in the living room. And then, like I said, they were by the front door. So they had for sure been moved and placed. Investigators would find some weapons at the crime scene. They found a bent steak knife, which not so fun fact. It was bent because of how much force the person stabbing them with bent it. That's so fucked up. Mm-hmm. And they also found a bloody butcher knife and a claw hammer on this little small wooden table that was near the entry of the kitchen. Now, before I dive into more investigation stuff and the suspects we have, I do want to tell you guys what happened with Tina. So it's kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Sadly, she was murdered as well, but they actually wouldn't be able to figure this out until the third anniversary of the crime. How did they find out? Well, an anonymous tip came in, of course. You know, give a little bit of Zodiac vibes there. So authorities had found a skull about 50 miles away from Ketty, and some articles said they had no idea who it was. Well, wouldn't you know, they get that answer because this call comes in and it's someone asking, quote, I was wondering if they thought of the murder up in Ketty, up in Plumas County a couple years ago, where a 12-year-old girl was never found. And that was all they said. So sure enough, They were absolutely right. It was Tina. Obviously, that made me think and makes plenty of other people think like that obviously had to be the murderer because there was also some kind of conflicting reporting on that. There was also saying that on the third anniversary, he called in and told them where to go to find a body or something and then brought up that it was her. So kind of inconsistency there, which there's inconsistencies with all kinds of stuff. So this is fun. Not. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you know, the authorities asked to talk to the young boys because they're the only ones that were there and unharmed. So Justin, who was the sharp boy's friend, apparently gave some conflicting stories on the evening. But like I said, he's a little kid first off, so I'm not surprised. He said things including that he had dreamt details of the murder to later claiming to have actually witnessed them. And they ended up putting him under hypnosis. And this is when he claimed to have heard sounds coming from the living room while watching TV in the bedroom with Rick and Greg. And he said that he went to check things out and he saw Sue with two men. And he said one had a mustache and short hair and the other was clean shaven with long hair and they both had on glasses. He also said John and Dana then entered the home and began arguing with the two men, which caused a fight to start. And after that, Tina came into the room, but was taken out of the cabin through the back door by one of the men. They actually would use Justin's descriptions for some composite sketches of these two unknown dudes, and they were done by forensic artist Harlan Embry. They did some press releases with the sketches, and they described them as being in their late 20s to early 30s, and one of the men being between 5'11 to 6'2 with dark blonde hair, and then the other being between 5'6 to 5'10 with black greased hair, and both having gold-framed glasses. Now, a little more to add on about Justin. So his parents were actually friends with Sue. The kids didn't just know each other. The adults did, too. His parents were named or are named because they're still alive. Marty and Marilyn Smart. Now, there are rumors that Sue and Marty were having an affair. And while all that was going on, she was supposedly, quote, counseling Marilyn because she came to her as like a friend and was talking to her about like their marital issues. She allegedly had said that 
Marty was abusive, so she was just looking for advice, and supposedly Sue told her to leave. And apparently when Marty found out about that, he was said to have gone, quote, ballistic. He wasn't happy. I mean, it is such a tangled web they're weaving. If Sue is really sleeping with Marty, of course in her interest she's going to say, like, yeah, leave him because then she can have him. Mm-hmm. So, of course, as you can guess, probably, this would lead us to our one of our main suspects. Along with this, authorities also honed in on a man named Bo Bobetti. He was a roommate of the Smarts, and it was, like, not a long-term thing. They said before the murders, he'd only lived there, like, 10 days. I love that his name is Bo Bobetti. Sounds like a fake name. <laughs> right? But what's really weird is, okay, the not weird part, they tunnel visioned on these two dudes, right? And then just a few months into this, it's just like the investigation just kind of stopped. It was just like the end, but not the end. The sheriff at the time that was on this case, his name was Doug Thomas. He had done some questionable things while he was on the case. One that appeared questionable, but makes sense after I explain why. First, he called the Sacramento Department of Justice and he requested two special agents from their organized crime unit, not the homicide unit, which many people were like, what the fuck? We ain't got no fucking mob people here. Uh, (laughs) Wrong. But what people didn't realize was that Bo was actually known as a, quote, mob enforcer. Oh. Yes. And Marty was a drug dealer, which was known by people. But still, Bo was also said to have been connected to Chicago crime syndicates with financial interests in drug distribution. Oh, damn. So that might have been why he was living with Marty. I don't know. I'm just making speculations, but there's that. So, obviously, if the sheriff knew this, it would make total sense why he called the organized crime agents versus just homicide. With that, though, Sheriff Thomas had actually resigned from the investigations just three months in and dipped out of there. He ended up taking a job at the Sacramento Department of Justice. It said that, quote, his handling of the case in retrospect would have been considered disastrous at best and corrupt at worst. I was told suspects were told to get out of town, so to me, that means it was covered up. And that quote was from Sheila, the daughter who had found her family. She had told CBS Sacramento that in 2016, so decades later. That's obviously a big thing to say, but Sheila wasn't alone in this thought, apparently. I guess a lot of locals, and honestly, as you hear more, you kind of understand, they thought the same thing. Apparently, Sheriff Thomas was actually really close friends with Marty. And guess what? Marty went to Reno shortly after the murders. Convenient. Now, Sheriff Thomas apparently didn't say anything about this for a really long time, but within the last like five years or so, since stuff has kind of resurfaced, he did make a statement. He said, quote, There was no shortage of suspects, but suddenly now everybody, 35 years later or so, have all figured out what happened and that all of the investigating officers were corrupt. It's laughable, is what it is. Martin Smart was not a friend of mine. At one point, he and his wife were having marital problems, and they came to my office when I was sheriff and wanted me to counsel them, end quote. But fun fact, according to Marilyn, that meeting never happened. Um, why would the sheriff? Right? Wouldn't they go to, like, a priest pastor first? (laughs) I mean, Quincy isn't that small of a town. Like, it has a fucking college in it. Yeah. They could drive five miles to a town that had, like, an 
actual place. I mean, they may not have had like a therapist, but like, I guess technically they could drive to like Chico. Yeah, there was definitely options. So I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah, I'm over here scratching my head. Also, a couple other things to note during the initial investigation, there really wasn't a ton of identifying information, really. Some say that the sheriff did not take this seriously, sadly. And it was said that one of the neighbors actually reported that they woke up to hearing a muffled scream around 1.30 a.m., but at the time, because they had been, you know, startled awake, they couldn't figure out where it came from. And when they talked to other neighbors, they had mentioned there was an unknown green van at the Sharp Cabin around 9 p.m. And then they said they also saw a brown Datsun parked out at their cabin as well that night. And it looked like it had a tire going flat or something, but that was really about it. Two strange cars and nothing happened with that. That's crazy. Yeah. Like I said, this is a cold case, so decades would go by without any kind of progress. It was essentially a closed cold case at this point. But thankfully, then in 2013, it would actually be reopened by their current sheriff, Greg Hadwood, and investigator Mike Gamberg. Now, Mike was a busy dude. He had said about the case, quote, it had brought some light, some amazing timelines, history of what some may call, quote, coincidence. Others may look at it more accusingly. I don't put anything outside the realm of possibility, end quote. So he obviously thinks shit was going on with this to bury it or something. Right. It sounds super insidey. Yes. We're going to find some stuff. Like I said, Mike was a busy dude. Good. And probably still is. So apparently, Mike, you know, per usual, when you reopen a case, you go through the case file boxes and everything and all the evidence and whatnot. And he found some interesting things. First, he would find a letter that was written to Marilyn from Marty. And the letter read, I've paid the price for your love. And now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through? Great. What else do you want? End quote. Mm hmm. Marilyn swears up and down she never received this letter, never saw it in her life. But when they showed it to her, she could confirm that it was Marty's handwriting. That brings up a couple thoughts. One is that if she's telling the truth, why the fuck was this never looked at? That's kind of a written confession. I know it's not like fully plain out, but it's very suspect. Mm hmm. The other thought is Marilyn was. And I don't know how I feel about this, but like some people have thought maybe Marilyn was in on it somehow and found out about the affair and was like, if you want to keep me, you need to get rid of her kind of thing. Along with that, Mike found some more stuff. He found an audio tape of the recorded anonymous phone call with the tip. And uh, I'm sure you can guess, spoilers, just kidding, not spoilers, nothing was ever, had ever been done with it. it. There was no record of it ever being analyzed at all. It just sat there. But it is now, in more current time, being analyzed and whatnot, so that's good. And then while they were doing, you know, this new investigation, Mike would end up finding and talking to a former therapist of Marty's that was in Reno. And apparently this therapist said that Marty confessed to the murders in a session and he literally drove from Reno back to Caddy to tell the cops about it. But they did nothing. Um, what did this therapist do? Like, did he? No, no, he he went to the police to tell them and then nothing happened. Oh, the therapist went, not Marty. Yeah, the therapist drove from Reno to the oh. police department. 
and told them what Marty said to him. And they just didn't care. And since this crime, Marilyn has done interviews and been on some documentaries and stuff like that. And she says that she found a bloody jacket in their basement the night of the murders and that it belonged to Tina. And she said she took it to the police, but it's nowhere to be found. It's not in the stuff. There's no records of them taking that in. It's just gone. So if she really did take that, that's just really pisses me off. Also, like, why aren't these people, like, shouting at the top of their, like, lungs? I don't know. Like, why weren't they driving to, like, Reno, Chico, Sacramento and screaming, like, the town won't, we have evidence and they're ignoring it. Why don't they call the FBI? I mean, all you need is three deaths. Oh, oh, don't worry. Here's what happened with the FBI. The FBI originally came out and early in the investigation, they're there and they're like overseeing it and stuff. And I'm assu- I don't know what these agents were thinking, but basically they were like, you got this. And they handed it over to the sheriff's department. So they probably were doing it right. And then like, then the FBI left and the sheriff's like, aha, we got this. Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly what fucking happened. Also, she said that she had told police that she had woken up at 2 a.m. that night because she saw Marty and Bo burning things that she didn't know what they were in a fire pit in the backyard. So she saw her husband and then the dude who was the mob dude burning shit. But then back at where the crime happened, the kid supposedly wakes up. It's their kid, right? Because he's staying the night. Yeah, yeah. Justin's their kid. And he walks out and he sees two guys. One is presumably his father, and he doesn't recognize him? See, the thing with him is they think if Marty was actually abusive, that Justin probably saw a bunch of fucked up shit, and probably, honestly, if he really did wake up, he might have seen it and then went back in the room and closed the door, and they do think something like that happened because they said somehow there was blood on the inside of the doorknob, and it was only on there. So that was weird. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, like, the thought is Marty, you know, his hands were bloody and stuff and, like, got Justin back in there and then, like, fucked with the door and whatnot. So that's the thought. And it's kind of like they don't, I don't know, they feel like the kid obviously was young and there's a bunch of different versions of, like, he said a couple different things. So they don't know which one to really go with that kind of thing. And people who come from like abusive households, you know, they're like conditioned, like what they can and can't say type of thing. And it's a great, it's a great like countermeasure because if you have someone, even as a child who could be an eyewitness, but suddenly the eyewitness is like unreliable, then if he ever did say, oh, my dad did it, they'd be like, but you've told four different versions of the story. So how can we believe you? How do we know you're not just mad at your dad right now? Exactly. And then the last update I have was in 2016, they located a hammer that was believed to be one of the additional murder weapons in a dried up pond there in Ketty. Because like I said, hammers probably. So that was kind of like the last thing that they had found. And that's kind of where it seems like the case is right now. It does seem like essentially that it was either one of two things. It was lazy police work and they didn't want to do it because there was also this quote of the sheriff being like, There just seems to be no motive. This is one of the hardest cases to deal with and shit like that. Or it was a cover-up. That's what I feel like it was. Now, you don't know if it was just as simple as Sheriff Thomas was friends with them, if he was 
you know, dirty and somehow involved in the, you know, the drug stuff. We don't know. Who knows if we will ever know? I hope we do. So because Sheila's still alive and Sheila's still trying to get justice. So hopefully she can get some kind of closure. And everyone is pretty much saying that this new sheriff and Mike, the other investigator, like they are the best thing that's happened to this case. Right. So hopefully something will come out of it. Like it's not too late. So I really hope that they'll be able to, you know, get this solved officially. It's crazy. Like, for one, it's always so heartbreaking when it goes decades without being solved because, I don't know, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, if Justin really did see his father killing someone, think about the psychological scars that that boy grew up with and then had to, like, look at his friends who lost their family and... And then look and then live in a house with a father who was potentially like if he was already violent, which it sounds like he was. Imagine knowing the how violent he could be. Right. That's terrible. It's heartbreaking all around for sure. But that is going to go ahead and wrap us up for today. Um, I hate to say I hope you guys enjoyed, but hopefully you found it informative if you had not heard of this case. I think this was, I did a thread recently in the Facebook group. I do that every often because I like to know what you guys want to listen to and Jessica likes to know as well. And I believe somebody in that thread had recommended this, but I also had stumbled upon this on YouTube too. So I wanted to share it with you guys since I haven't done a cold case in a while. But that is going to wrap things up for today. We will see you back here on Monday for a paranormal episode. Bye. Toodles. Toodles.